Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to Innovation Matters. The centrality of innovation to growth and sustainable development is not in dispute. But the history of what we call the great enrichment that we talked about uh, with other guests uh, shows that there's a wide divergence within countries and also across time. So today you see many success stories such as Israel, Estonia, and to some extent Ireland, but also many others fall behind despite their best efforts. And this is difficult to explain through standard measures such as institutions, and especially now knowledge and information can easily be copied and used. Some do and others do not. So the central question is how and why do countries become innovative and how and why do they fail to do so? And why and how is this relevant to policies, not only to policies, but also uh, to politics? Our guest today to talk about this is Zachary Taylor, Professor of Economics and History at Georgia Tech. Professor Taylor, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So this discussion is based mostly on your book, The Politics of Innovation, Why Some Countries Are Better Than Others at Science and Technology, uh, which is a very rich um, and, and empirically elaborated um, venture on answering big questions such as this. So I congratulate you on that. And I'd like to start out by asking you, what's your motivation and your, uh, what's the motivation for this book? Why did you become interested in it? And I'm particularly interested in uh, the fact that you started out as a physicist and how that influenced your thinking on the matter. Sure. Um, so the book basically summarizes about 20 years of research and investigation all in one place. I wanted to encapsulate everything I had figured out uh, and found and additional provide kind of a guide to people new to this question in this field, which is uh, innovation uh, studies, uh, the politics, economics, history of, of innovation and sort of bring give a sort of review of what we knew and then my contributions uh, to it. And a lot of it came from uh, uh, my younger in my career, I was trained to be a physicist, uh, but when I got my physics degree, uh, I graduated at the end of the Cold War um, when a lot of physicists were coming out of defense contractors and employ employers could get a an experienced physicist for about the same price as a newly minted bachelor's degree, even though I had research experience. So despite being told all my life, that uh, if you study science and technology, you'll get a great job. I was not getting any jobs. So I went with my second love, which was at the time I was fascinated by Japan. Japan was the next big thing, the big rival to America at the time. So I wanted to understand how that works. So I traveled to Japan. I went to university there, learned Japanese, and I came back with both the knowledge of the Japanese market, Japanese culture, Japanese business, and my physics background. Sure that I would get a job this time, but I was foiled by the recession of 1991. So at this point, I realized, okay, I keep on getting bitten in the butt by this politics and economics stuff. 
So I need to understand this better. Why is why is U.S. competitiveness sort of rising and falling over the years? Is Japan the next big thing? Why are why not France or Italy or Australia, some of these other countries that should and could be as competitive? Why weren't they the next big thing? So this started started sort of a you know decades long investigation into why some countries are better at science and technology than others, which then culminates uh, in in this book that I published back in uh, 2016. Well, excellent. So you call this a stubborn a stubborn mystery, and uh, uh, let's pick up on Japan. That's one of the examples that you also talk about at length in the book, and also Israel. Um, as you say, it was. No one predicted that Japan would be successful. Um, Korea, people thought people thought it was one of the poorest countries in the world. A, uh, Africa would have much better prospects. Um, and at the same time, as you say, the, France has had excellent scientific capacity since basically the Enlightenment. But it was Great Britain that took off. And later on, it was Japan and then Germany that took off. So what happened in Japan and what does that show us? And what did not happen in France and other countries? Right, excellent, excellent uh, point. A lot of the if you went back to the year 1950, Japan, Korea, Israel, these were all basket cases. Finland was largely natural resources. You never would have bet money on them being more innovative. You would have bet uh, on Mexico, which had all this oil wealth and was right next door to the U.S. France, Italy, other countries that had long histories of science and technology. Yet those countries did not perform nearly as well as the first ones I mentioned. So originally, the thought was throughout the 80s and 90s uh, it, that Japan and these other countries got their policies and institutions right. And this this argument was led mostly by economists who look at the world quite accurately in terms of markets and market failures. So the idea is if you solve the market failures, then innovation will happen and your country will become more competitive. So the science and technology will become pouring out. So the hunt was on to find the silver bullet, the secret sauce of the right institutions and policies. So they started delving into all sorts of different countries, Japan, the US, Netherlands, Germany, etc. And over the years, they could not find any single set of institutions or policies that worked. What worked. One of the central messages of the book is that there is no single set that works. Every country can uh, uh, customize uh, as long as you solve these basic market and network failures. In other words, you don't have to be Japan. You don't have to be Silicon Valley. In fact, what worked in Silicon Valley may not work in Mexico or France or uh, another country. What worked in Japan may not work in uh, uh, over in Europe or in Africa or in Brazil. That you have to sort of customize the institutions and policies to the politics, the history, and the culture of the country in question. So that's one of the big messages out there in the book. Yeah, definitely. And what what we also talk a lot about this is uh, the degree of state intervention, which was relatively high in Japan, uh, even higher in Korea. Um, but industrial policy, of course, in Ghana and in many other countries, Soviet Union, almost failed completely. So the question is, why did it work in one, one place and why did it work in another? And by the way, California and Silicon Valley also fascinates me because it has some of the highest taxes in the US. It has some of the highest salaries. It's extremely difficult to build new homes. So housing prices are very high. And yet, it refuses to lose its dynamism. 
Right. So we know how to make countries, organizations innovate. And there the economists are right. You want you want to solve a lot of the market failures and some of the network failures that uh, uh, plague innovation. But if I were to say in a single line how to make a country, a corporation, a football team, whatever it is, more competitive, more innovative, it would be you want to create a competitive environment and pour resources into it. Now, there is a problem in that not everyone in a country wants a competitive environment, especially established players. Microsoft does not want lots of competition. Amazon, ExxonMobil, Apple, they don't want a whole lot of competition. They already dominate the market, so they, they're, they're on top. They are not interested in creating more competition. So they will fight against policies that will attempt to nibble away at their advantage. On the other side, to create a competitive environment, pour resources into it. Pouring resources into it means that someone is going to have to pay for it. It means that some people are going to get subsidized and some people are not. So again, the people who are going to have to pay more for this don't want their taxes raised. And the people who might see their subsidies decrease so they can go towards another industry or organizations are going to fight to defend their subsidies. And where regulations might change in order to create com competition, et cetera, people are going to fight against that. So there's an internal politics. Put simply, innovation creates winners and losers. And the winners will support pro-innovation policies and the losers will fight pro-innovation policies. And the winners oftentimes aren't, don't exist yet. Remember, this is new technology, new industries. So they're very fractured, very infantile. They're not strong enough yet, whereas the established players, the losers, the potential losers do exist, and they have a lot of political ties. So they can exert their will to fight innovation, and they often win, which is what we see in the majority of countries out there. In the majority of countries, they would rather just copy, buy, import science and technology. They create it themselves because you create tremendous upsetting investment and change that the established players, the status quo interest are ju just not willing to put up with. The difference is when there is some sort of threat from outside, some sort of threat, either an economic challenge or a military challenge, which requires that country to innovate. In other words, they're going to lose it all unless they're willing to make those sacrifices, take those risks, accept that redistribution. And that's what happened in Japan. Yeah, and we'll get back to, to some of these issues before. Just one thing that comes to mind. Um, well, we know from the literature that most regulation actually stems from lobbying by entrenched interests. So, for instance, in the US, when they mandated uh, the catalytic converter, that was a result of a monopoly a GM subsidiary had and uh, the wish to uh, erect barriers um, to Honda, who had better emission standards, but did not have a catalytic converter. So there's there's always seems to be a bootlegger and a Baptist problem there. I think also the issue with data regulation and 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 Google struck me as well, you increase, you massively increase the cost of compliance. That's of course going to entrench Google's uh, Google's position on the market because they are the ones that have the huge legal department and the means and wherewithal to deal with them. But any competitor would have to build them up from scratch. So this this happens all the time. 
Yes, definitely. Almost any policy, regulation, taxes, trade policy, uh, patents, etc., can be used by established payers to protect their advantage. Uh, and we see it a lot, and they often disguise it in arguments about patriotism or the environment or security or national culture. So to disguise it in very broadly appealing ways, but what they're ultimately trying to do is protect their markets from competition, especially newcomers with threatening new technologies. Um, and this is why the message that a lot of the, my book is sort of targeted at economists and economic minded policy folks because they tend to ignore the politics. Uh, they tend to define out government or government is an annoyance or an interference at best. And one of the messages of the book is you can have, you know, a perfectly designed economic policy, but if it doesn't fit the politics or the culture or the history of a country, it's not going to work. It'll get, uh, it'll malfunction, it'll get warped or corrupted in a way that defeats its purpose. So we wanna be sort of aware of the politics of every of every environment. Yes, definitely. So we'll get back to that in a bit. Um, but first, uh, one of the main themes in your book is uh, Cardwell's law, which is basically uh, the law of diminishing returns. Um, if you could define it to us and also explain to us um, that uh, that you think that it's still holding, because. Normally in the um, political economy literature, you see the great enrichment of the industrial revolution as the escape from Cardwell's law. It is held until then in the Arab Empire, in the Renaissance, in the Dutch Republic, uh, the, Rome, uh, the Roman Empire. Um, but after about 1820, we managed to have, uh, we managed to sustain growth at levels that were unforeseen before. So did we escape Cardwell's law or not? So Cardwell's law comes from uh, a history, historian of science and technology from the 1960s, 1970s. And he just put simply, and then uh, Joel Moker, who's an economic historian, sort of captured it in some of his writing in the 1990s. And it's basically the, the observation that no country tends to last very long at the technological frontier. Countries will, will suddenly become innovative and advanced to the technological frontier. They'll hold it for a generation or two, and then they'll fall off. But they'll get replaced by another one. And there doesn't seem to be any logic to it. So again, the fight is to, is to understand, okay, why, are, why does this law apply? And can we, can we predict or explain which countries are going to make it or not? And I don't think we have escaped Cardwell's law. I think it is still in operation. And my argument is that countries are going to become more innovative where they're incentivized by the by external versus internal threats. In other words, every country has various challenges. If those challenges, if, if your rivals are mostly domestic, different interest groups, different ethnic groups, different geographic groups, different cultural groups, what have you, then each will see the other as a rival, as a threat, and they're not gonna wanna take the risks or funding or sacrifices that come along with innovation. However, if there are external threats that might be economic, maybe they need uh, their strategic imports that they really need to raise the money for, maybe they're threatened militarily and they need you know, weapon systems or defense systems, but if the external threats outweigh the internal domestic threats, then those, those countries will make the sacrifices and take the risk to innovate. 
And I'm not saying it's all about external threats or all about internal threats. It's that balance between the two. Every country has both. And where the domestic tensions outweigh the external threats, they're not going to innovate. When the domestic, when the external threats outweigh the domestic tensions, then they will innovate. And so that gets you into sort of, you know, country by country analysis as to how you think they're going to go, which the book does. Yeah, and I would I would say that the two things you were talking about come together nicely because uh, on on the one hand you have some some kind of external impetus, and we'll we'll talk about your idea about great insecurity later uh, that might trigger a dynamic that leads to innovation, but that innovation creates a certain structure, a certain culture, a certain expectations, and certain entrenched interests that will in time um, resist change to to once the paradigm shifts and it's shifting very quickly now as we see with digitalization and that might explain why countries like japan for instance um, thrived for several decades and then stagnated because the, the interest in the model that it had built its success on uh, is becoming obsolete or less effective so i haven't uh, uh been able to look hardcore at the cross-national data uh, recently, because uh, I've been getting into leadership issues around competitiveness. But Japan definitely is not innovating like it was back in the you know 60s, 70s, 80s, but it's still fairly competitive in science and technology. We still bought, purchase from and respect uh, uh, Japanese firms in all sorts of different industries. So they're not innovating like they were, but they are still pretty good. Um, I think but, where we see it, oh, sorry, go on. I meant stagnating, not declining, stagnating right, compared so, so, to yeah, other so, countries. Yeah. Right, so the, compared to other countries. Uh, I think the greatest risk, and, and I'm a, a, you know American, so I know the U.S. the best, is we definitely see it here. During the Cold War, there was an all-out push on American innovation in all fronts. Anytime uh, the Soviets or the Chinese seem to be, and the Chinese never approached us at the time. Anytime the Soviets seem to be challenging us, and then later, you know, Germany or Japan, we would invest in that area. But now we feel a lot less threatened. And to a certain extent, America is becoming, I don't know, uh, 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 fat, dumb, and happy. So we're sort of cruising along. So now we're beginning to fight amongst each other. You know, is spending on universities worth all this? Is spending on all this basic research, you know, worth it? Everyone wants lower taxes. And we see the established players like Amazon, uh, Microsoft, Google, et cetera, becoming, you know, quasi monopolies. And we're not proceeding very quickly on antitrust in these areas, uh, Facebook, et cetera. So we're beginning to lose that competitive edge. Now, we are beginning to talk up the China threat and, or the potential Russian threat, which I don't think is is talked up as much, but China is the next big threat. So we are beginning to lever that. And to a certain degree, the pandemic and climate change are also tossed out there as existential threats to justify more investment in S&T, whether it's education, basic research, industrial policy, et cetera. We look at what Biden's done in the uh, last few years, investing, investing in domestic production uh, like the CHIPS Act. Right. And a lot of that gets motivated politically by the threat from China. Uh, so we may do OK, but we also see a very sort of this nationalist. Why are we 
bothering these other countries. Why are we spending all this money? Let's just cut our taxes and cut this stuff. You get culture wars where they're attacking science and technology as a threat to whatever they see as native culture. So we see, and these tensions exist everywhere is what I argue. Um, so it, how they balance out, how they, they weigh against one another is the thing to pay attention to. Uh, yeah, I think I'd like to get back to that point when we uh, when we talk about the policy implications. What's, what strikes me what strikes me is that uh, Operation Warp Speed uh, in the U.S. worked well. Um, but perfect did, example did did for instance the the, the decision to um, to produce chips work that well? And are we seeing much innovation in the energy transition? So I have a few questions about that about that later. But I wanted to go back to um, to how nations innovate, which you talk quite a bit about. And as we said before, you see very little correlation between between standard factors, you call them the five, the five pillars of innovation policy and the uh, success of nations. Uh, but you also take aim at uh, institutional economics and you say that neither institutions nor policies cause nations uh, to innovate. At the very least, they enable nations to innovate, right? Right. I think that was a big mistake of the 80s and 90s is that, and some still do, is that we see institutions and policies as causal forces. They are not. Institutions and policies are not causes. They are tools that countries and policymakers can use to achieve results. So in the book, I make analogies to a surgeon tools. So Anders, if I give you a bunch of surgeons tools, scalpels and scoops and saws, you, that doesn't make you a great surgeon, right? And even if you have medical training, you're not necessarily going to be a great surgeon just because you have the tools. The, the what matters is your intentionality, your incentives, um, your, you know, your per, maybe your personal beliefs, other things like leadership and culture can also matter. But institutions don't cause or determine anything. If you don't have the tools, you're definitely at a weaker position. But just having these institutions and policies doesn't automatically solve the problem because we've seen so many cases where countries have great universities and have had them for decades or centuries, but they're not being directed towards producing science. They're directed towards producing uh, other things. Or there are uh, subsidies going to education or research and they're misspent or misused. So just because you've got all these economic tools doesn't mean they're gonna be used right. You do want them there, but it doesn't having them doesn't explain why some countries innovate or do not. Yeah, and I, I would add to that uh, skills and knowledge and productive capacity. So what's mi what's missing when I have the instruments, what's missing is the skills and the knowledge to be a surgeon, uh, to be able to be able to use them. And I think that's often that's often that's often neglected uh, in the discussion. So in about the 90s, you saw a mass rush into at least the objective of the Washington consensus, liberalization and free markets. Uh, but of course, in the former Soviet Union, with a couple of exceptions, such as Estonia, uh, that led to what Hayek calls the opposite of free market capitalism, namely crony capitalism, the worst mm. of the bunch. Um, and you saw countries like El Salvador emerging from civil war, doing everything by the book, seeing no growth because they didn't have the productive capacities to venture into anything else but coffee. There, there is, and scholars like uh, Dan Bresnes up at University of Toronto get deep into this. And there are two things. One, what, what allowed 
countries like Japan, South Korea to do so well in the 20th century is they invested gradually. So they first got into textiles and then used that capital and knowledge to build into basic materials like steel. And they got into shipbuilding and they kept on going up the value chain into automobiles, basic electronics, computing, cutting edge, you know, airplanes. So they grew themselves up a value chain in industries over the course of decades using the knowledge and capital earned to invest in the next step. And uh, what what presidents and others point out is you could do that behind protectionist walls because you weren't competing with the rest of the world. You were just competing with yourself for the most part using export led uh, economic growth. However, in the new globalized world, you're immediately competing with the rest of with with all these other countries. So it's a lot more difficult for countries that are not protectionist to jump into global high tech markets. They can find certain niches in which they can specialize and um, uh, uh, different countries have picked different issues. This is not my area of expertise, but folks like uh, Israel uh, and others have sort of done that niche, have identified their niches, delved into them and developed their expertise. So if I were advising a country like, I don't know, uh, Brazil or Mexico or some of the countries today that wanted to go high tech, I might actually lean protectionist to the degree that they could get away with it so they could repeat the Japan experience if they can get the politics right and make sure that all that investment and that protection is not wasted on cronyism, just as you said. I, I have the feeling that by the time we, we, we discover the recipes of the past or while, you know, while they are working, they're obsolete and we have to find something new, which of course makes the question even more, even more challenging. Um, so, you talk about the importance of, of networks, uh, social and especially international. I think that's that's not controversial, but I think you want to put this at the center of, innova- of innovation policy and government policy. I, I do to the extent that when I was writing, I'm sort of arguing against the conventional wisdom, largely coming out of economics, folks like Jerome Asimoglu, uh, you know, the whole Douglas, Douglas North school of thought that focuses almost entirely on domestic institutions and policies. And in doing so, they ignore the networks component, both the networking, both the domestic networks and the international networks. And when you look into the success stories, uh, Korea, Japan versus the more moderate level successes, like, say, Ireland, the Ireland, uh, uh, Ireland got a lot of the institutions right. but Japan, but South Korea n- did both not, did both the institutions and the networking. Yeah, yeah. I, I think in Ireland, uh, by the way, we have an episode with uh, Dan Bresnitz on Israel and Ireland. I think in, in Ireland, the, the, the issue was that there was a lot of investment, but it wasn't the type of investment that transferred skills to the local population and allowed for mm-hmm. local entrepreneurship. Um, so that's, that's something that's missing too. Um, and, and that's what I, I kind of to. mean by networking. Again, at heart, I'm a political scientist, uh, so I'm talking in broad terms. But uh, uh, what is what Israel and other countries did well is the way they cycled people in and out of government, in and out of the private sector. They sort of made sure that people moved around throughout the through the, through the, throughout oh. the economy, uh, so that they got this knowledge and experience and took it from government to private sector to universities and got got these networks flowing. So these information and this relate these relationships. Uh, invaded one another rather than being siloed out. Okay. Uh, 
Yeah, I think, by, by the way, uh, I read the Douglas North quote on how to change institutions, and his recipe was first change your history. So <laughs> even though that's that's the starting point of, of the analysis, and of course, institutional economics does explain quite a bit, such as the, the examples that, that Achimolo and Robinson maybe cherry-picked, um, but it doesn't give a recipe for what to do. Uh, it's one thing to change the rules to make it easier to register business. It's quite another to develop what Joel McCure calls uh, uh, a culture of growth. Uh, so whether they're right or not, it's uh, it's still not a recipe. But I'm wondering about the state's role on uh, on promoting networks. Um, I see, we see in our work, we see quite a bit of initiatives called uh, science collaboration, open innovation, um, we see incubators and, 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 and technoparks. We see uh, up until a decade ago, there was a massive boom in, in um, top-down planned clusters. Um, but very few of these seem to have much of an effect. And many of the things that we've seen emerging, such as automotive supplies in Moldova, uh, took place this took place without government and even despite government. So how do you see government playing playing a role in uh, in what is what is what is actually emergent order rather than something that you can plan? It's that's a that's a really tough one, and I've wrestled with that myself. How can governments promote productive networks? It's tough because we form our networks, especially our most productive ones, so organically, almost accidentally. Someone you happen to meet at a conference uh, or through a friend. Um, and I think for government to promote these type of activ activities, one idea might be to do sort of some of these grand challenges where government picks a problem in science, technology, industry, and then brings together uh, not just scientists, uh, scientists from different fields, and not just scientists from different fields, but together with folks from industry, from venture capital, uh, from marketing, so that you've got these different brains almost from the get-go sort of working on the problem in different uh, uh, versions. And we've done this in the past, uh, off, you know, like the Manhattan Project, uh, and we've attempted this with different, but but sort of more like those type of activities, and then allowing these folks to go out and start their own companies. Israel has this model, or had this model, uh, back in the uh, 70s and 80s that helped it leap forward from being a mostly agricultural country to the high-tech competitor that it is today. Yeah, and not only that, it was uh, what someone what someone termed uh, kibbutzim socialism until maybe the maybe the late 60s, and then maybe 10 years after that, it was at the cutting edge. So it's it's perhaps the most interesting quantum leap um, quantum leap stories in contrast to to East Asia, where where we have this uh, model of uh, accretion of um, uh, creation of, of capacities and and incremental improvement. Okay, so um, let's move on. Let's move on now to your most interesting claim, and that is that of uh, the importance of creative and security. So you write institutions, policies, and networks help to explain how nations innovate, while a country's net balance of security concerns help to explain why countries innovate or not. Make the case for us. That's that was a very stark claim to me. Right. So again, the argument in the book is that the, the, these domestic, these institutions, policies, and networks are tools. 
They're tools that we can use to create a more innovative economy. And we know a lot about them already, right? You, you know, you, you basic microeconomics, policy analysis, et cetera. A lot of this we know. So the question is, how do you, why, how and why do some societies embrace these tools and use them properly and others not? And there it's this balance of domestic versus external threats, which I call creative insecurity. When countries, when societies are broken into different factions that see each other as rivals, you know, conservatives versus liberals, different regional groups, cultural groups, ethnic groups, what have you, class divisions, et cetera, then they're not so willing to take the risks and bear the costs of in good innovation policy. And that would be that would be unproductive. I would say you get creative insecurity when these same countries go, wow, we got to work together if we want to earn the foreign exchange to pay for all the energy we import or the food that we import or the weapon systems that we import or the high tech or, you know, we're invasion, we're in in uh, threat of being invaded. We might have a war breaking out uh, soon or around us and we need to develop our own sources of technology. And that can also motivate people to tamp down their internal divisions and accept the sacrifices and shared burden of innovation. Okay, so let's let's expand that a little bit. You you talk about two types of politics that are in competition with each other. The first is domestic distributional um, politics and the second type is uh, is is security. Could you explain a little bit what you meant by that? And I also picked up on your comments about Manker Olson, um, why he was only partially right. Maybe that's a good way to anchor it. Right. So M Manker Olson says uh, you're going to get these different interest groups, and once they establish the, each other themselves, they're basically going to you know capture uh, government and policy, and they're not going to want any competition, so you're going to want it with stagnation. He's writing in the 1970s trying to explain American stagnation. Um, and nothing, you know, you need some sort of, I don't know, revolution or a new country altogether to, you know, become, to act more competitive because not burdened with all these status quo interest groups. And my argument is that once you've got a, a, an external threat of some sort, then they will get their act together. And we saw this in the 1970s. A lot of the investments that resulted in the uh, telecommunications computing industry that were the boom of the 90s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s came from Cold War investments. Investments by the federal government into basic science, into uh, spin-offs, into education, that resulted in a lot of the technologies that we take for granted today. So a lot of what Microsoft and Apple and Google, if you trace it back far enough, it comes back from uh, defense-related investments and research. So yeah. that's where I think that Olson has it wrong. Yeah, my my um, well, the first part of what you explained, what what Olson said, sounds pretty much exactly like your thesis. Um, but I think the, the my my question about you know, for instance, your argument and the argument of people like Matsukato um, of uh, um, the, the driving nature of government investment. I would put it to you that I think during the Eisenhower time, it was actually 40% of the federal budget. So, you know, trillions and trillions may, went into mainly DARPA. It would be strange if nothing good comes out of it. That's the first point. The second point is you talk a lot about the intent 
it's hard to imagine that a lot of the technologies that emerged were the result of planning rather than serendipity and, and confluence of circumstances. So talk a little bit about, um, about that. I, I, I think that's definitely true. Uh, a lot of them wound up, like the initial technology would come out satisfying what was a uh, military purpose, but then it would be get adapted and sold to the private sector that would take it in different directions. Uh, so in another piece that I, I, I wrote um, after the book, I got taking a look at national cultures. And I found that cultures, national cultures that emphasize a lot of individualism tend to be more innovative than others in that, and it wasn't on the supply side. So it isn't the fact that you've got all these individuals, quirky individuals who go off and become scientists and entrepreneurs. That's part of the story. But what's really driving us is all of us individual consumers that we want to compete as individuals and starting our own companies or just as social actors, right? We want to be cool. We want the latest technology or this type of gadget. So we're, we're, we're our own sort of social competitor. So as consumers, we demand more innovation from our products and that sort of uh, uh, carries on, carries through to the innovative state of the country. You get a lot of producers wanting to adapt innovation to this market and they become highly innovative. Whereas more collective societies tend not to do this. Now, the, the exception to that rule is there are different types of collective societies. So collective societies where the collective is the friend group, the family, the region, are less innovative. And here the stereotype is maybe, you know, Italy uh, or some of the Latin American countries where you care about your family or your neighborhood or what have you. And it's sort of a smaller group. Collective societies where the collective is the country or the corporation that I'm working for, and they're making sacrifices for that, this would be Japan, Korea, and you could argue China. This is where you get collectivists becoming very innovative. So highly individualistic, and nationally or corporately collective cultures tend to innovate better than other types. I hope I didn't wander too far afield from that. No, I think there's definitely some truth to that. But at the same time, I can think of as many exceptions as um, as cases that, that prove the rule. The rule. Um, take for instance, um, you talk you talk quite a bit about Soviet Union. Uh, which of course had plenty of intent. Uh, it registered, uh, I think, at, in some years more patents than the United States, but clearly was not innovative. Clearly relied almost exclusively on extensive growth, and was at least intended to be a collective society or um, think society as the nation. Right. Well, I mean, you can argue back and forth. I mean, there are a lot of uh, purges and, you know, collectivized uh, farming. Like there was a lot of um, uh, uh, infighting and rivalry within the Soviet Union. Uh, they were not setting up markets, creating that competitive environment, solving those market failures. They were not using those tools properly because you had a lot of factions within the Soviet Union who were uh, fighting one another. And to the degree that they did hype up, the American threat. They were competitive in those sectors, such as the military, aerospace, uh, computing, to a certain degree, and then some of these basic sciences that fueled into it, right? Up until the 70s or so, but it was the productive capacity and the maintenance capacity that was falling apart. So they're delivering a lot of the science and basic prototypes, but when it came to maintaining this stuff in the field, it begins to fall apart over time. 
Uh, but North Korea is another example, right? The one place where they're all sort of focused as the external threat is military. And they have been very innovative in terms of their nuclear program, right? That's the one place where they're relatively cutting edge uh, because that's where they focus their ex sense of existential threat. Otherwise, they're totally uncompetitive and very, very backward. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit this balance between um, government investment and common purpose and uh, market forces to provide price signals and to, to reallocate resources to the most productive use which of course was was missing in the Soviet Union and which made pretty much everything political. The prices that you got, mm -hmm. the people, the people that you knew, and you know, you hear of people in Kazakhstan supposed to produce something and they buy something in the black market and then say we produced all of it. I mean all kinds of warped incentives like that. And it was very hard to reform. And by the by the way, the reason they started in computing about the generation after after the whole calculation debate with Hayek and company, um, they realized that, okay, central planning is too complex, but let's build a computer that will do it for us. Right. Of course, right. of course it of course it didn't work out. But uh, that was the motivation. Um, all right. So um, so we have this balance between distributional politics, um, entrenched interest, and uh, the sense of a common threat. And it doesn't have to be armed conflict. It can also be, it can also be economy. Could you just give us one or two examples of how it applies? Maybe Israel or uh, Japan or any of the other countries you talked about, just to illustrate. Right. So the Is Israel example is that after Israel is uh, founded and you have all sorts of uh, groups, Jew Jews from different nationalities, communities, uh, religious factions, economic beliefs going to Israel, and they're basically rivals of one another. There's very poor sense of a, of a nation in that sense. So you get the quasi-socialist kibbutzes, agricultural, and at the time, the Arab world is divided against one another. And some of them are even seeing, quietly seeing Israel as not so much as an ally, but as a useful tool. They don't want it to be overtaken and over destroyed. So Israel at the time, the ri internal rivalries are a lot taken a lot more seriously than the external threats. This changes in the late 60s when the Arabs become more united. And a second generation of Israelis has begun to grow up and they begin to see themselves as more united. So the, the dynamics flip where the domestic rivalries drop and are now outweighed by external threats, especially after the 67 war. And uh, a lot of Israel's allies fail to support it very well. And they realize, wow, we're on our own. We can't depend so much on uh, external uh, uh, exports for technology, for support, for weapons. We need to get our own stuff into gear. And that's when they yeah. make all these investments in developing S&T industries. And, and Bresnitz has written, Dan Bresnitz at UToronto has written on this um, in yeah. a fabulous book from, oh, I want to say early 2000s. Yeah, I think one, one, of the, uh, one of the points he puts forth, which I found really interesting, is that Perhaps the single most, there was also a financial crisis at this time, so some restructuring was necessary, but perhaps the single most important reason why Israel took this turn is because, is because, um, is because France blocked 
uh, weapons exports. Right. They produce a right. lot of things, so all of a sudden they had to produce quite a bit on their own, uh, which I thought was interesting. And of course, military technology, um, most of it has some kind of civilian application. And then you couple that with the faith in the private sector and also liberalizing the private sector to go with the ideas wherever they want to. All right, so um, maybe one one more example. Let's take, for instance, post-war post-war Germany. So I do not know the German example very well. Okay. Um, but I would assume you've got similar stuff going on or, in that. Or, at, at, or, at or first, take take another one. Well, I'll I'll take it and and let's see if you can flesh it out. Uh, um, if you know the German case uh, better than I. But after the war, obviously Germany is you know defeated. Uh, uh, um, you know, complete physical disaster, and there are actually plans to defang the German economy to keep it stuck in basic industry and agriculture so they can never rise again. And the Germans themselves are dealing with the after the failures of the war and the divisions amongst Germans, uh, not just left and right, but across different strata. And so it's really a divided country that that almost, I mean, it's, it's a charnel house, as uh, Churchill said. So then the Cold War comes. And the external threat to the Soviets uh, pushing out and taking over. So then everyone changes plan. We start pumping uh, funding into Germany, trying to build back its uh, industry and allowing uh, basic and then more in intermediate, more advanced defense. Obviously, that we anchor it within uh, the what will become the European Union, so they can create those networks, both to make sure that Germany stays more locally peaceful, but also to provide those interplays of knowledge, information, and personnel, both domestically and internationally. And that's the extent to which I know the German case is that when the external, as the as the external threat changed, everyone involved in Germany, at least from the West, changed their thoughts on Germany. And the German themselves said, "Okay, we need to invest in this sort of thing." Yeah, and I I, I think I, I agree with you on that, but I would add that perhaps the, the the most important moment, or at least one which is almost mythical in the German perception, is Ludwig Erhard, the uh, finance minister's decision. Um, as the myth goes without the, the American um, occupying forces knowing about it, created uh, the Deutschmark, which has become iconic and uh, almost a symbol of uh, consumerism gone wild. I don't know if you've seen the, the life of uh, Maria Brown, um, the movie Fassbender, uh, which sort of depicts that. Uh, Germany had been suffering through hyperinflation and then, of course, the Nazi period and, and, and corporatism, uh, instability all over. And then, of course, the war, the devastating war. Um, there was a period of absolute disarray. Uh, it was uh, many people thought that it was going to become a socialist country as well. Uh, there was a lot of polarization uh, and there was hyperinflation or they were using lucky strike cigarettes, uh, complete chaos. And then overnight, um, Erhard fixed all of that, and that sort of concentrated the minds of the Germans to to rebuild uh, to rebuild capacity, which of course they did with uh, with a vengeance. So let me slide in there because my most recent research for the past ten years, since I wrote the book, has been focusing on the role of leadership in creating a more competitive economy. And I think what you talked about with the Erhard example is key when you have leaders. They, but you know, we tend to discount leadership. You know, they're just you know politicians sitting in a chair, and that's what I thought. 
until I started digging into these cases. And you need leaders who have a vision for where they want to take the country. And they have to see science and technology as part of the solution for the country's problems. And they have to be proactive in trying to advance and implement that vision and supporting those policies. You can't, uh, there's a great line, again, I keep on invoking presidents, but he's got such great quotes. Uh, he says, you can't just sit back and let the market throw some economic growth your way. I would say the same thing with innovation. You need governments with leaders who are going to be leading the country, policymakers, designing institutions and policies, and, and selling and implementing these. So leadership also matters. Yeah, and I think when there's a sort of a public choice issue involved here, and that is that, um, I mean, you're, you're definitely right that uh, that uh, we are going to find alternative energy sources, and and we've been using hydrocarbons now for over two, two centuries. It's time for it to go for many other reasons beyond. But as a policymaker, if you as a policymaker, if you advocate uh, for an energy transition. It doesn't really fly to say, well, we're going to transfer out of this. We don't know how and what will replace it, but don't worry. In 20 years, we will have figured something out, which is a true statement. And if you look at history, there's overwhelming evidence for it, but it's not politically attractive. So you have to you have to define how you're going to get there. And that locks you into a certain to a certain path, which if it turns out turns out to be unworkable, you're going to be stuck with and keep on subsidizing. Right, right. No, I, 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 I agree. Um, I, again, I, my, I go back to my basic, which is our best way, out, best way to innovate out of this problem is to create an in a competitive environment and pour resources into it. And we're doing that more and more every every few years. We're creating these environments where we're sort of trying to subsidize both supply and demand both for science, education, technologies relevant to climate change and the energy transition. We're not doing enough. We're not doing it fast enough. And I think some of the way the culture plays in, for example, I've re recent headlines have said that electronic ve electric vehicle sales are down for cultural reasons because they're seen as too woke and too liberal and people want to prove how tough and masculine they are by buying a, a, you know, a gas Hummer. car, right? A Hummer. Right. And that's that's, you know, that's opportunistic nonsense, which unfortunately you get various uh, people playing on because they want to get elected or make some money or appear on TV, you know, get get some likes on social media. And, you know, that's 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 all part of it. Yeah. Well, I think any time a topic gets hyper politicized, which we have the impression here, many, many things in the US right now, then it's it gets less and less possible to really have a productive and nuanced discussion about it because whatever you say you put you, you put yourself in one particular camp and that also puts you in that also associates you with all kinds of other beliefs and opinions that you have to stick to um, so one one of the so so we, put, we we've been talking about the importance of of uh, of the state here and where the state can play a productive role but also about the risks um, of Basically, different types of government failure, which also which also abound. So, I think one of the solutions uh, that you that you propose 
to make sure that the state has as a productive role is to create competitive spaces. I'd like to relate this to the episode we had with, with Joel Mokir and also many others agree with us that uh, one of the reasons for uh, the rise to rise of Western Europe was exactly uh, fragmented and relatively poor states that were in competition with each other. I think personally that the reason Switzerland is so competitive is because almost everything is delegated to the cantons, even things like tax policy and licensing. Uh, and it's easier to move between cantons. So you always have this, they always copy what works from someone else. They always make sure to, to compete. You can't, they can't have much bigger taxes than the next canton or everyone will move there. And this has created some kind of, some, some kind of symbiosis. That's at the national level, but what do you mean in terms of uh, supporting uh, public support of innovation by creating competitive spaces for the private I might sector? add that uh, Switzerland also relies heavily on imports for a lot of strategic uh, uh, inputs, both in their consumption, industry, et cetera. So they have that external threat of, hey, we need to earn the foreign exchange in order to pay for all these imports. So you have both the domestic stuff and the external stuff balancing out in a way that creative security would uh, suggest. But as far as creating these competitive uh, uh, spaces, I think our university system might be a good example in that the universities compete with one another for both students and research dollars. And on campuses, you have a competitive environment between uh, uh, scientists and students, right? The students are competing to get the best grades, to go get the best jobs. And the scientists are competing in their labs. Everyone's trying to get as many publications and citations and Nobel prizes, et cetera. So, and then you're pumping education dollars, research dollars into this system. So the students are not paying the full price for their education, right? They're being subsidized, they're getting scholarships and state money and federal money to help pay for it. The universities are getting the same to help fund basic research. So you create this, this competitive environment and pump these resources into it. And the example I'm trying to make to folks outside of this debate, you know, non-economists, um, is think about uh, your favorite sport. You know, baseball, football, you know, American football, European, what we would call soccer, right? Uh, we don't just say free market, go on the field and everybody play. That would be a disaster. But what, what we do is we create a competitive space, a controlled environment, and pump resources into it. So every team will have coaches, weight rooms, nutritionists, uh, you know, exercise advisors, et cetera, trainers. And they will take their players who have to compete to get on the team. They'll give them the best food, you know, dorms to sleep in, transportation, the games, all the best training and practices. But once they get on the field, they have to compete. So you want to think of creating a competitive economy in the same way you can create competitive sports teams. You create the space where people have to compete, and then you pump resources into those parts of those spaces where all the training and practice happens and then release them into the economy where they can compete. And you want to keep that fluid. It's when people uh, uh, regulate themselves or manipulate the game so that they don't have to compete that the sport gets boring, the players get fat, dumb, and happy, and it all begins to fall apart. Yeah, I, uh, two things come up. First is that um, one of the things that I always try to push through when 
we work with, especially former Soviet Union countries on innovation policy is that there should be a single goal of innovation policy. It should be to make sure more people try more ideas out than otherwise would be the case. So to provide some mechanisms to back to backstop the risk, but at a certain point you let you let them compete and Definitely. see what works and what and what does not. Uh, but another thing comes to mind, and that is the topic of um, uh, regressive or unhealthy competition, which there's some literature about, but 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 specifically uh, I'm thinking about, for instance, U.S. colleges. We uh, we have an ap episode in planning with Brian Kaplan, who basically goes through lots of data and comes to the conclusion that there's the correlation between um, between level of education and and uh, and skills have more or less disappeared, uh, and uh, and uh, that the premium that we would pay for a school like Harvard, and I think it's upwards of seventy thousand a year uh, tuition at the moment. Uh, Actually, most of what we pay for is signaling the fact of having gone to Harvard, not necessarily because we got a better education there. Um, and uh, the same point for um, the same point for competitive sports. I don't know American football uh, very much, but um, they put some rules. They put some rules into place um, to to avoid uh, injuries. But, and all they have now have all kinds of predictive. You know, they look like you know um, losses. Um, but and after, I think that's that, after, after that, uh, I, I, I'm just finishing up. After that, the injuries didn't didn't go down because they adapt they adapted the behavior. So a lot of things can go wrong. Also, if you try to uh, you try to um, create competitive spaces. I think that's dead on. Absolutely correct. Very good analogy. In that you don't want to maximize competition because then people start beating each other up rather than playing by the rules, right? On the football field or, you know, sabotaging each other's labs or what have you, uh, or faking results, right? So it's not to maximize competition, but you do want to optimize competition. You want to create a, as much competition as you can have without the sort of bad behavior breaking out. And there always will be some bad actors, right? So that balance is down to, you know, it's a, it's a micro decision for policymakers. But that's a great distinction is we're not maximizing competition, we're optimizing competition. And when things become too competitive, bad behavior uh, breaks out. As far as the value of universities and education, that you could do a whole other podcast on, and I, I, I yeah, hope yeah, you do if you, so. yeah, if you haven't already. Right. Um, but I, I would disagree that they, they don't have a constructive role at all, because universities do teach very important STEM training skills and knowledge. And if we want to have a, a competitive economy, we need more than just scientists and engineers. We need people who understand economics, business, policy, and also history, culture. These things all matter. A lot of uh, folks who, um, you know, I, I don't want to attack any one side, but a lot of folks who think conservatively, not necessarily politically conservative, but conservatively about science and technology, say, oh, this other stuff is all nonsense. You know, all you need is STEM training. Just give, teach a math and science, the other is, B, is BS. But we find that societies, companies that, that do this, tend not to function very well because this other stuff matters. And when we hear at my universities from employers, I'm at the Georgia Institute of Technology, which is one of the top uh, engineering schools in almost any field of engineering that you can name, is that when employers talk to us, they say, your engineers are great. They're great in the lab and equations and all that stuff. But could you please teach them more about business 
and communications and how to interact in a policy environment and how to interact interculturally in other with people from other countries and different backgrounds because when we produce our products and sell our services and do all stuff all that stuff matters so if you're only training people to be good scientists and engineers they're going to be handicapped getting out into a competitive economy yeah i i think i overstated uh, brian kaplan's case a little bit <laughs> a little bit there um i think the the important insight was uh, um, the increasing value and uh, uh, the net welfare loss of signaling uh, which I think, which I think is definitely true, but it's also it's also hard to see how we could uh, how we could do without it. Um, good. Well, we're we're uh, we're more or less out of time, um, but um, I have one final question. If you want to comment on this, there's a lot of concern here in the e in the EU about uh, the innovation gap based on uh, based on different measures, number of unicorns, uh, number of uh, High growth startups, uh, maybe maybe also patent registration and scientific publications, uh, versus the U.S. and uh, some parts, some of the, the more dynamic parts of Asia. Um, from your perspective, why do you see um, why does this gap persist? Um, I suspect, and again, I don't know how well I could defend this, but my gut tells me that Europe might be a little overregulated. Um, in the same way that the U.S. might be a little under-regulated, and in the U.S. we're probably under-regulated in terms of antitrust. Um, but otherwise, my sense is Europe might be a little over-regulated, a little bit more room for new players to come in and experiment, for established players to grow old and 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 die off. I'm talking company industry-wise. There's a little too much defense being played. And again, don't. I, I wouldn't want to be pushed on this because I haven't been delving deep into this area, but that's sort of my sense. Yeah, and that'll happen. We, I think that's going to happen big in China. We're going to see China really slow down. I think in science and technology because of exactly these problems. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's difficult to see where China is going from here. But I, I keep thinking that we've been predicting the end of China for about thirty years now and systematically been wrong. So I'm I'm wondering. If we're really right this time, no. I think in, we had an episode with Adam Tier on this. Uh, what you say, what you say, is definitely true. There's more, there's more regulation here. Although, for instance, states like California are also pretty good at at uh, regulating in detail. Um, but there's also a much more of a widespread use of uh, what Adam Tier calls the precautionary principle. Um, so, for instance, we banned uh, GMO foods. Foods. Um, and of course, they turn out to be essential, especially to battle to battle poverty. Um, and it's hard to get out of this because you create entrenched interests and uh, um, you take political stances that you can't be seen to, to sort of move away from. Um, good. So um, any additional points you'd like to make or avenues for future research or things that policymakers, innovation policymakers should uh, should keep in mind? I, you know, I, you, I guess I guess I guess you're not proposing that they should start wars. No, no. And that's the <laughs> problem is when I wrote this in 2016, you know, there are various ways to think about external threats. One is the military and the other is the real ones, you know, disease, aging, climate change, the energy, problem, etc. And I thought if only we could pivot more towards the second category as opposed to the fourth first. And I think the experience with COVID and the Trump era, which isn't just a, a U.S. phenomenon, it's sort of a global phenomenon, it says every country has its own version, 
is that um, it's going to be a, it's harder to sell people on abstract external threats and a lot easier to make them fear of other human beings, whether it's manufactured or real. And that's that's disappointing to me. Um, uh, but otherwise, this has been amazing. You give me such scope to sort of rant on about everything I care about that uh, anything I would say at this point would probably be re repetitive. All right. Well, it's been a great discussion and many thanks for joining us on, on Innovation Matters. And uh, I can only highly recommend your book. We'll put a link up to it and also to a few uh, to a few other things that we mentioned um, in this program. Thank you very much. Thank you.